Our sermon text today is Ecclesiastes 7, verses 15 to 29, as we return to our sermon series through this book of wisdom literature. Uh, it's, uh, as many passages are in this book, uh, it's at times tricky, times uh, a little confusing, so we will walk through it and we will see what the Lord has for us today. Um, before we do, some of us some of us come from backgrounds that uh, have taught us that that if we just believe enough, if we just trust enough, if we're if we're just good enough at, at, at being believers, then things will go our way, right? That, that as long as we're trusting in God, then then everything will work out and and we'll be happy. Everything will go just like we want it in life. Everything will. We'll work its way out. We'll have healing in the midst of our sickness that our, our investment portfolios will take off and we'll have all kinds of wealth. Our lives will be nice and long and full of nothing but happiness. There are a couple problems I'd like to point out with this. One of them is, is this kind of thing is often told to us by somebody who's telling us that we can demonstrate the strength of our faith by giving them a whole lot of money um, you know and and we I hope see the the problem with that but also even beyond that if we look around the world at us it just doesn't match with that reality does it because we see people that we know are faithful people people that we know have trusted in the Lord who face all kinds of hardship we we can look in the Bible and we see this quite clearly but we don't even need to look in the Bible. We can just look at the lives of friends, family members, even our own lives, and see that even in the midst of faithfulness, sometimes life is very hard. The preacher in Ecclesiastes brings this up and prompts us to think about it here today. In Ecclesiastes 7, verses 15 to 29, before we turn to that passage... Let's ask God's blessing upon our time together here. Lord, we just ask that you'd give us eyes to see today and that we would hear your voice. Uh, it truly is my desire and I hope the desire of all who have gathered here today not, not to hear the voice of a, a mere man standing before them in a black robe speaking his thoughts, but rather... We pray that by the power of your spirit working in and through your word that we might truly hear your voice. Speak to us now, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now as I read from Ecclesiastes 7, verses 15 to 29, this is the inspired word of God. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, 
withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take heart, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have yourself cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word, which inspired by God is our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, just this weekend, I received word about a, a fellow graduate of Covenant Theological Seminary. He was a, a, a couple years ago diagnosed with a terminal illness. He was about the same age as me, but, but had gone to seminary after I had, and so I never actually met him. But I know many people who did know him, and they were fellow pastors who, who spoke to how he had many, in many ways been a pastor to them. They mentioned how he had taught them how to pastor the least of these. They relayed how they had listened in awe as he had week after week stood in the pulpit and preached on dying well as a child of God and what it meant to trust in God's promises even in the face of the greatest of enemies. They told me about how they had called him to comfort him and encourage him and instead found that he was the one who strengthened and encouraged them. He was a good and godly pastor who faithfully served the Lord. And yet this weekend he died. Far too young from our perspective. It's this very type of problem that the preacher presents to us in this text, is it not? He sets it up right here in the very first verse we looked at, verse 15, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his 
evil doing. And this does not seem fair, does it? It does not seem fair. It's not the way it ought to be. And yet the preacher tells us this is the way that it is. In my vain life, he says, in my vaporous, unpredictable, uncontrollable life, I have seen everything, says the preacher. I've seen it all from one end of the spectrum to the other. And yet we needn't be as wise nor as experienced as Solomon to know that this is the case. We don't need to have seen everything to have seen this much. And just as sure as we've seen it, there is something within us that says this is wrong. It bothers us. It gnaws at us. There's something in the pit of our stomach that is just uneasy with it. It is the same question that has been posed by thinkers throughout the centuries and perhaps most famously by the conservative Jewish rabbi Harold Kushner in the 1970s. How do we make sense of it when bad things happen to good people? Well, now there are many things we could say in answer to this question. We could, of course, bring up the fact that there aren't actually any truly good people. We would, of course, be right. None of us are purely good. That's what the psalmist tells us in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. That's what Paul writes in Romans 3 where he says, None is righteous. No, not one. We even see it in today's text, don't we? Verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So do any of us deserve to be called good, righteous, perfectly righteous in all of our ways? Of course not. For we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not one of us who who meets the lofty requirement of holiness that God demands of us. That's why we're separated from God. That's why we need a Savior to come from outside of ourselves. We're not able to save ourselves because of that sinfulness, because of that separation. And that's why ultimately we need Jesus. That said, when the wisdom literature speaks about the righteous, it's not necessarily speaking about being righteous in quite the same way as, for instance, Paul would. It's not talking about a legal sense, per se. It's more, rather, using it as a point of comparison. If we were to separate people into two groups, the the righteous and the evil, kind of the good and the bad, the people who follow after God and the people who don't follow after God. It's not saying that the righteous or the good are those who perfectly follow after him, but rather those who who long to follow him, who seek to follow him, and who do follow him, albeit ever so imperfectly. And that's why the scriptures can speak of people like Noah and Daniel and Job, and it can refer to them as righteous or upright people. 
even though they sinned, even though their righteousness is not able to save them, it does set them apart from those who are actively in opposition to God. And in that sense, they are good people. Sometimes from our perspective, they do die far too young. And we're left ourselves to respond to that. Well, how do we respond to it? We, we ask ourselves, what, what's the point, right? What's the point if, if you're one of these people who's doing what you're supposed to do? If, if God calls us to follow him and we're following him and we're trying and we're seeking to be his children, and yet we might die too soon, what is the point? That's what the preacher looks at, and he says in verse 16, in response to this query, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. And now there's some who see that and think that he's offering foolish advice or that he's saying, he's saying, don't, don't bother being righteous, you know? Don't bother being wise. What's the point? He's, he's going along with this. I don't think that's what he's saying at all uh, for a couple of reasons. One is because this would pretty directly contradict what the Bible says elsewhere, right? We consider the words of Jesus who says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We are supposed to hunger for righteousness. We are to, to try to be righteous. We are to, to desire righteousness in our own lives. So he is not saying don't desire any righteousness, that it's not worth it. We clearly should seek righteousness. We'll come back to that in just a moment. What he is saying here, notice he says, be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. And that might cause us to ask the question, well, well how can you be overly righteous or, or too wise? Well, well, if we're speaking quite simply, you really can't be too righteous, right? Because Jesus is perfectly righteous in all his ways. And he is perfectly wise in all of his wisdom. So, so you can't be too much like him in that. But I think what he's saying here is, is that there are times where we try to be overly righteous or too wise. We, we try to be more righteous than God requires in a sense, right? God says, this is what, you, what I require of you. And you say, you know what, I'm not only going to do that, I'm going to go beyond that. I'm going to do something more, and I'm going to be extra special, and I'm going to be more holy because I'm doing something even more than what God desires. Right? It's kind of this Pharisee, Pharisaic viewpoint. That's what the Pharisees did. They said, okay, we've got all these rules that God has given us, but we're going to set up rules beyond the rules. Right? And if we keep the rules beyond the rules, that will show that we are extra special and God will have to do what we want he'll have to bless us he will be indebted to us almost and I think the preacher tells us here don't don't do this don't become overly righteous don't be, try to be more righteous than God don't try to become more wise than God Right? Because to do so will, will ultimately destroy you. You could destroy yourself by, by thinking you can out-holy God, right? That you can be so holy that you obligate him to yourself. So, so self-oriented, self-directed. It's an example of how 
uh, what is said in Proverbs 16, 18 is true. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Do not try to become so overly righteous or too wise in that sense. Then he says in verse 17, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Right? We said that that's not right either. Like we said before, that's, it's not a matter of saying, well, it doesn't matter. So we'll swing the pendulum all the way to the other side and we'll just do whatever we want. No, he says, indeed, all sin. Right? We mentioned that a moment ago in verse 20. But our relative righteousness does nothing to earn God's favor. But what he's talking about goes beyond that. The point he's making here is that, that some, sometimes we all sin, but, but beyond that, there are some who, who embrace sin in such a way that their lives are destroyed by it. Again, this is not a one-to-one -one correlation. That's not how wisdom literature works. It's not saying he who does this will always have this happen. But, but it's saying there's a tendency when you follow this path, this is usually how it works out. And, and we know that this is true when we live lives of complete and utter hedonism. There are all kinds of ways that that will destroy our life. It might be pleasurable in the instant, but the long range is bad. And so he makes these two points. He says, don't be overly righteous. But at the same time, don't be overly wicked. And then he says in verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that, withhold not your hand. What he's saying there, he said, take hold of this, and from that, not withhold your hand. He's saying, saying hold on to this, and hold on to that. Hold on to both of them. Right? Hold on to this idea that you, you shouldn't try to be too righteous. Don't try to be more righteous than God. But at the same time, don't be too wicked. Don't try to reject the righteousness of God. Hold on to both of those because the one who fears God, he says in verse 18, shall come out from both of them. See, he's saying we can't, on the one hand, guarantee a long life and, and obligating God through our rule keeping, right? Through being faithful from doing these things that, that we think we're supposed to do. We can't make God say, well, I was going to take him on Thursday, but he's been so good, I've got to leave him now, right? That, it doesn't work that way. There is a day appointed, right? There's a time to be born and a time to die. Right? We cannot change those by manipulating God in that way. So, so we can't do that. But at the same time, we need to seek to obey God, not, not to leverage him somehow, but but rather to simply be obedient. So we need to fear God. That's what he's calling us to here. Fear God, not worshiping him for what he can do for you, but worshiping him for who he is. Right? We worship him for who he is. He is our creator. He is the one who has made us. We are his. Beyond that, we, we frankly don't know what is best for us. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about that. We, we don't know what's best for us. He 
does, and we can trust him, even when we don't understand what he is doing and when all around us seems to be going in the contrary direction, that is what we saw just recently at the cross, is it not? When all seemed to be wrong, when all seemed to be terrible, when all seemed to be spinning out of control, when evil seemed to be having its day, God was working out our salvation. He was bringing us the forgiveness that we could not bring ourselves. He was showing us that his grace is greater than all of our sin. Jesus went to the cross and did so willingly. It was not easy for him. Remember, he prayed, Lord, if this cup can pass, Take it from me. But he also prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. <clears throat> so even in the midst of confusion and fear and pain, he related rightly to his heavenly father. He, he realized that God in heaven is not some cosmic vending machine that we, we just simply have there to respond to our wishes. You know, we... we put in the requisite number of good deeds for the product we want, right? And then we push the correlating button with a prayer and, and God spits it out because, you know, we've paid for it. That's not how it works. That's not how God is to be treated. He is a, not a, a vending machine to be used. He is a God to be feared. It does not mean he is any less for us, but it does drastically change the way we approach him. I've shared it before. I'm, I'm going to share it again because I think it's just such a wonderful picture. But in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, early on, the, the children who have gone into this, this mysterious, wonderful place, Narnia, are being told by a pair of beavers about this great king, Aslan. And they don't know who this Aslan is other than being made obviously clear to them that he is mighty and powerful. This mighty king who will one day return and set to rights all that is so wrong in the world. And little Lucy asks the question, is Aslan a man? Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood and a son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. 
don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is how we should see God. He is the king. He is the mighty king. He is the powerful king. And nothing we can do can manipulate him or bend him to our broken and sinful wills. We should fear him, for fearing God is of the essence when it comes to truly being God's people. In Proverbs 3 we read, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. In essence, fearing God is remembering your proper place before him. Remembering that he is the creator and we are his creatures. And we see a great example of this attitude in Job, right? In, in, in Job, who having been declared by God himself to have been blameless and upright, even so he was struck with the most terrible of tragedies, the most horrible of, of circumstances. And he responded this way in Job 1.21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Scripture tells us that in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is the way of true wisdom, as opposed to the pseudo-wisdom, as the preacher put it, of being overly righteous or the outright folly of sin. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9 tells us. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Verse 19 in today's text tells us that wisdom gives strength to wise men more than ten rulers who are in a city. Rulers might seem strong. They might feel strong to us. When we look about us, it seems that they have power over us. But he is saying here that wisdom is stronger yet and very much so. Wisdom is what we actually need, especially in a pervasively sinful world where, where there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And as a result, he warns, do not take to heart the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. He says, people are going to say bad things about you, even when you are being faithful, even when you are following me and doing what you're supposed to. People are going to say bad things about you, and you shouldn't be devastated by every criticism. And it's interesting what he says here. He doesn't say, don't be devastated by every criticism because they're just a bunch of idiots. That's not what he says. He says, don't be devastated by criticism because you know that you do it too. You know how quick you are. He, he says, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Right? He says it's possible to do this. He says, says, don't listen to that any more than you'd listen to your own self in this. He says, all of this, all of this, it doesn't make any sense. All of this, I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but... It was far from me. I wanted to wrestle this all down and get it all figured out and put it in a nice, cute box with a tidy bow around it and be able to have it all figured out. It was far beyond me. 
That's how true wisdom, true knowledge, true understanding can be often. Paul writes in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. And God says through the prophet Isaiah, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Sometimes we cannot comprehend the ways of God. How could we ever expect to? After all, we cannot even comprehend our own thoughts. How much more so those of God. Verse 24, that which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it? He's saying this makes no sense. These, these, these thoughts, the way people act, these people, I look around me at the world and I look at my own life and, and none of it makes any sense. It's all, it's all just unreasonable. I turn my heart to know and search to seek out wisdom and to scheme of things. I wanted to kind of figure out how things all added up, how it all made sense and, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And it just doesn't make sense. He says, says, sin is abounding all around us, but sin is the most unreasonable, most irrational, most insane thing in all the world. Right? Just think of, of, of what it says to sin. Why would one who, who knows both intellectually and experientially God's love and power and goodness and faithfulness as Adam did in the garden. He, he walked with God. He had the, this close fellowship with him. Why would one who had all of this and knew it all forsake it? And yet Adam did. And in Adam, so did we. And so do we every day now. It is pure and absolute folly. That's what he talks about in verse 26. He says, I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He's not talking about a real woman here. He's not talking about that, that one woman that he knew way back when or whatever. No, he's, he's talking about lady folly. In, in wisdom literature, lady wisdom and lady folly are often set against each other. That's all Proverbs 9. Go home sometime this week. Read through Proverbs 9 and see how it sets these two against each other. The, this lady wisdom and lady folly. And that's what he's doing here is he's talking about this woman who, whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fed. fed. This, this, this lady is folly. He's saying our, our folly and our sin ensnares us and it, it captures us. The sinner is taken in by it. And behold, verse 27, this is what I've found or this is what I've come to understand, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, to see how this all adds up which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I've not understood, I've not found. So that I just keep trying to figure it out, and it makes no sense. And in poetic language, he says, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Like he's saying that it's just not anywhere to be found. And, you know, maybe, maybe one out of a thousand men, maybe, maybe. I don't think it's a precise calculation. It's a poetic form of saying this, right? He's saying it's impossible to find anyone who makes sense. And so in verse 29, he says, see this alone, I found. This is all I understand from all of it. Uh, all this nonsense, all this ridiculousness, all this craziness all around me. This is all I've figured out. 
that God made man upright. But they have sought out many schemes. He's taking us back to the garden, back to Genesis, where God made man sinless. But man came up with many schemes, many crazy, insane schemes, instead of following him. He says he knows that this is the case. Can't figure out why. Can't figure out why Adam would fall, why we would sin. But he knows that it wasn't God who did it. It is us. And since we cannot make sense of this crazy, insane world, since we cannot lay hold of the wisdom that understands it all, we should entrust ourselves to the one who is wisdom itself. Entrust ourselves to the one who knows all things, to the one who is completely able, to the one who is wisdom personified, that one who also defeated the wickedness of sin and has paid the price for our darkness and our foolishness and our irrationality and our insanity. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as for one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. So in a way, we end up where we began today. Back in verse 15. For there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And not just the righteous man that we were talking about there, kind of good, seeking after God, but a purely righteous man, a completely righteous man. We, we, we just remembered it this last weekend, a week ago, as we, we looked to Christ on the cross, sinless and pure and holy in all his ways, dying for our sins. And joyfully, that next Sunday morn, rising from the dead. When things make no sense, trust in him. When all around you is falling apart, trust in him. When even the darkness of death is descending upon you, trust in him. He does not promise to give you all the answers, but he does promise to be the answer. Trust in him. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to know this truth. Help us to know this truth with all of our heart. Help us to find our peace, not in circumstances, but in you. Help us to find our wisdom in you. Help us to always be in and with you. For we ask it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.